Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. It has been entirely, entirely too long since we've, I've been here, we've been here as a family. Um, I'm the only one that could make it of this crew. So they don't, they all belong to me in some way, shape, or form. But um, the tall redhead is not from our gene pool. Um, my father was his height, but we took after my mother who was 5'2". So anyway, um, that, that's myself, my wife Heidi, our adopted son Ty from Thailand. No, it's not spelled the same. Our daughter Annalisa, who was born in India. Our daughter who, Elia, who was born in Inglewood, Colorado. That's mundane. Um, and then there are two, but the next slide shows there are three kids, because now they have three. And Jackson, Kezia, and Lena. And uh, Wow. They are handfuls. A lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, we, Heidi and I had infertility problems for 13 years. When a doctor and a nurse have infertility issues, you've got to wonder what's going on. But uh, we truly do love each other, and God graced us, not only with two daughters naturally, but a whole bunch of others along the way. Our youngest daughter, Annalisa, she teases that wherever Mama and Papa go, they bring back permanent souvenirs from that country. <laughs> and... There's some truth to that. Uh, yeah, One of the things that I guess Heidi and I have committed to early on in our marriage is wherever we live, whatever we're doing, we're involved in local ministry. 
It's really important. It's really important to keep our own hearts alive and fresh. And it's really important to, to understand the culture around you and the people that you're dealing with around you. To me, that's just a vital thing that we need to, as God's people, that we need to own in life. So I guess why don't we just jump in and get started because I could go on and on and on for a long time and I don't want to do that. Do we have a next slide? I thought I did. Thought, oh, there we go. There's the rest of the kids, the grandkids. Uh, the two older ones, they have birthdays close enough together that they just celebrate at the same time. So if you see, I don't know if you can see it. I can barely see it. But there's four candles for Jackson and two for Kezia up on the nose. Um, and they're, yeah, they're dingers. They really are. Cute. Next. Okay. This... <laughs> One of the projects that we're a part of with Served is uh, church planting, church building, training of church planters ministry in Mombasa, Kenya. This, this was an empty lot that was filled with trash. The trash was t- taller than this wall when they started clearing it. The church members cleared it. The church members brought in all the stone and did the foundation work. And this, the next slide is what came out. I guess I have the clicker, don't I? I am so sorry. Uh, you should never give this to me. That, that's kind of where it went. And for, for almost a year, that's how they worshipped. Now, I don't, I, none of our sending churches would ever worship in a place like that. I mean, you get rained on, you get snowed on. Well, they did too. And they got sunned on. And they had all kinds. But that's what they had. And that's what they said. We don't care what is not on our heads or what's falling on our heads, we're here to worship God. And so they did. And uh, anyway, that's, this is what they are in now. And I, I love this picture because it, it, it shows all the kind of rusted tin roofs of all the slum area around them. And this, is, this is in the middle of a slum that um, was formed out of Muslim persecution and created a bunch of what we call IDPs, or internally displaced peoples. And so Muslims fleeing from outer places into city to get away from the persecution from their own people. And we'll get into that after a bit. One of the things I challenged the pastor, Alex, on early is to try and see what you can do as a natural part of the, the, what you're doing there to bless the, the, bless the neighborhood. And that was something he, was, he and his wife have been engaged in from the very start, whether it be education or whatever. But one of the things they needed, obviously, was a bore to um, produce their own water well. And um, so they made that available to the people in the slum, clean water. Um, they started a football team, soccer, for those that don't know any better. Um, I asked the pastor's wife who's standing there, I said, so I'm just curious, but what did you name this team? Well, her name just happens to be Patricia. So if you look at the jerseys, the team's named Patricia. <laughs> I, I love, only she could get away with that. That's funny. Um, this is the name of the school that God brought us together to, to start. And so it's the Global School of Mission and Spiritual Formation. Uh, I love that they're the ones that have come up with all this. I honestly have been um, along for the ride and encouragement and give a few thousand attaboys and attagirls. And uh, God is leading them into some phenomenal things. But it's interesting as you watch the history of Africa as a, as a continent, 
You know, you, you've got the, the initial birth of the gospel was along the coastal regions. And then you've got organizations like African Inland Missions, named that way for a purpose, to go interior. And, and then a lot of work was focused on the interior, and the, the shores began to fall apart, frankly. And now if you look at that coastline between Somalia all the way down, it's strewn with ruins of churches, and the whole place is Muslim. And so these people have a vision of planting churches all along the coastline and going back to <laughs> the coastal areas. And so that's what they're in the process of doing, is equipping and training church planters to do that. This is one of the, the church building is to the left there. This is one of the buildings they have for offices and hopefully for housing longer term students, because it's a two-year program that we take them through. I'm the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Do you believe then? Now, why do we live so differently than that then? Why, why do we? And we all do. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pointing a finger at any of you. We all live as though that last line is not true. And we're going to kind of hammer on that this morning because I, I have a suspicion our, our Father would rather us live differently than that. Amen? Yeah, he would. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The next two slides I'm going to show you, to me, visually capture what that entangling sin could look like. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, I know you all have probably heard this sermon, this passage taught a whole lot of times, and this is not where I'm camping this morning. I just wanted to introduce it here. There is a, a race, a course, set out for every single one of us, every single one of you. Some of you sitting here this morning don't believe that's true. It's true. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is a course he has set apart for you to run. Looks very differently from mine. You can praise God for that. It, very differently. And, and we're different from each other. So looking around and comparing doesn't help a bit. Because we're all on our own thing, right? On his thing for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And uh, cross, uh, there we go, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The whole point? Don't grow weary and lose heart. I don't know about you, but these days, it is easy to focus on something other than Jesus and to grow weary and lose heart. And to feel like we're in a losing battle, and we are not. The sin that so easily entangles. This is Angkor Wat. Siem Reap, Cambodia. Um, I, I love the way the structure is still so, mostly intact. But it is consumed by the sin that so easily entangles, isn't it? 
This is from the grounds of the Taj Mahal, and it's the same thing. The tree seems like it's growing, but look, it is absolutely choked and strangled by this thing leeching off of it. The sin that so easily entangles us. Uh, what happened there? I don't know. Oh, oh, it's a whole verse that's missing. Did I do something wrong? Uh, don't. It wouldn't be past me. Anyway, it's the beginning of Mark 6. And Jesus talks about, you know, a prophet in his own town is not honored, has no honor. And, and there's, a, there's a problem with that. And he could not do, Gene read it, he could not do many miracles in that place. I, I don't know how you read your Bible. To me, I, I, I talk to my Bible a lot. What? What? Why? I mean, we're talking Jesus here. He can do miracles wherever he wants to, right? But he could not do many miracles there. Have you ever asked why? Because he was not able? I can't be. I mean, you're talking almighty God here. It can't be because he wasn't capable of it. So why could he not do many miracles? The NLT, New Living Translation, says, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Oh my word. Are we not going to have any scripture in this thing? I mean, I went to a pretty conservative seminary. This is not allowed. Um, anyway, the, he was amazed at their unbelief. And, and the issue becomes, the issue becomes us, doesn't it? Our hearts. The truth is, is that we do not have because we do not ask. Is that passage? I, I would look it up, but it, it's, it's a passage. It's supposed to be there, but it's not there. Um, we do not have because we do not ask. And we do not ask because we ask with wrong motives. We ask with all kinds of things. But we don't ask because... This is my own heart, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Because we got this nailed. Thank you very much. One of my main ministry partners in India was a man who, who lived, lived the truth of the gospel all the time in front of me. It made me mad. He said, you, you, you do what the book actually says. <laughs> He'd laugh. He'd go, yeah. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, but he came to the house one day, and in, in India and other parts of South Asia, you leave your shoes at the front door. They're, 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 they're dirty. You don't, you don't wear them in the house. And so you, he left his shoes at the front door, came in. We had a couple hours of prayer together, and, and he went to leave, and he went past the shoes. Hey, Jacob, didn't you wear any shoes, man? Now, I'm, I'm half laughing because it's monsoon season. Of course he wore shoes. I mean, you'd be sopping wet out there. And, and he said, uh, no, uh, a friend of ours, Muslim guy who had just come to Christ, needed some shoes and I gave him mine. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, God gave me those and I figured he would give me another pair. <laughs> and I just started laughing. I said, come on in here. I, we had just had a, a family come through town just that morning and, and he had... This, the husband had said, here, I'm going to leave these Adidas tennis shoes with you. I have carried them all over India and I am not taking them back home. So he left them there. 
I said, you know, 1.4 billion pairs of shoes out there. I'm sure we have somebody that needs, needs shoes. And so he left them. And I said, come on in here and try these on. So Jacob goes over, he tries these on. It fit like they were custom made for him. And he, I mean, Jacob was not given to tears like I am. He, he, he started not weeping, but had tears in his eyes. I said, what, what? What's that all about? He said, uh, I've been praying since I was a small boy playing football. That someday, Lord, if you would be willing, I would love to have a pair of leather shoes from outside. He said, I just think it's kind of funny that God chose now at 44 for me to get a pair of leather shoes from outside. And uh, I, I just sat there and said, you know, you, you amaze me. You guys, he and our other ministry partner would constantly give away out of their lack what I would not give away out of my abundance. You see, I had gone through, in my mind, they, they, they pray for things I don't bother praying for because I would just go to Walmart or some other place and get myself, thank you very much. They don't have that option. And so they pray. And they ask for things. And they get to see God work in ways that we can only imagine because we've already decided what he does and does not do and will and will not do why could Jesus not do many miracles there because they had already decided in their own hearts the place that Jesus fit and it wasn't in this place we don't need you to do that thank you very much am I alone here or do we do this all the time yeah, all the th- you can raise your hands. It's okay. God knows your hearts anyway. Uh, it, we do this all the time, don't we? Well, there's the next slide. Did you hit a switch back there? Or did I do something? Who knows? I, I probably did. Um, so Jesus, in the next passage there, is Jesus is saying, um, he comes in the crowds following him, and he's with the fellows. Now you've got to remember, this whole scene of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and all of this, it was the busiest day we have recorded in the scriptures of Jesus' ministry. What did the day start with? Does anybody remember? I know. I know it was clear last week that Brooks preached on this but um what what was the what how did the day start what was the news that jesus had gotten the day started with the phone call your 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 cousin john the baptist has been beheaded that's how the day started and it went from there next he's got a crowd of people wanting from him now, now that may sound like nothing to you unless you read the scriptures and put yourself in that place. If you've never been in a place where people were wanting things all the time, it gets wearing, to put it mildly. It gets wearing. The disciples had just come back. They were tired. Jesus says, let's go over here and let's, let's feed these people. And I know. Brooks emphasized last week, you feed them. Yeah, you feed them. And they're all looking at each other going, wow, I don't, I don't have the food. Do you? No, we don't have the food. Well, for those of us that relegate the feeding of the 5,000 to something that happened a long time ago, I just want to bring us up to speed a little bit. 
This particular story I'm about to tell you happened 2004-2005. The uh, border between Tunisia and Libya is a... It's been a point of interchange and exchange of people, human beings, for a long, long time. All of my life and beyond. It has been a place where... Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. It's been a place where if, if the government's unstable here, which they're both unstable, but if the government's unstable here, we go there. If they're unstable there, we go here. And there's been an in, influx and a flow of human beings across this border for many, 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 many years, if not forever. 2004, 2005, there was a team that was down in, uh, in Libya and... Uh, and they were praying because there was persecution and things happening up in Tunisia and the people were starting to come toward the border to come across for relief. And they were praying and they prayed for a week. No real clear answers. Now I'm not talking about, you know, crazy charismaniacs and Pentecostals. I'm not talking about crazy, crazy, those kind, you know. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the team leader is a huge Dutch guy that's about as conservative as you get. And they prayed and, and nothing. Prayed for another week. And, and the poor people on the team, including the Libyans, they're going, you know, sir, all, all we're getting is go help. That's all, that's all these people are hearing. Go help. Go help. And, and he, what does that mean? Yeah, well, we're not sure. Let's pray some more. So they prayed another two days. Go help. And they finally just said, you know, there's 15 of us. Let's get in the cars and drive up there to that border crossing that's the second one out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of nothing. Let's go there and, and just see if we can help. So they drive up there, the Libyan commanders there and uh, with the army, and, and he goes up to him, mountain of a man goes up to him and says, we're here to help. <laughs> he looks at him like he's standing on his head spitting BBs. And he goes, help with what? And, and he said, uh, we don't know, whatever you need help with. And he said, can you cook? And he said, I, I think so, yeah. He said, can you cook rice? He said, sure. So he said, then go back in that tent. There's some huge vessels. Go back and cook enough rice for 750 people. He said, okay. So they go back. There's 15 of them. So, you know, I mean, if you, if you live out in most of the rest of the world, you know how to cook rice quickly. So they go back and they start making rice. It's done. And they set up three feeding stations of big things of rice. And, and they start feeding. And they start feeding. And they keep feeding. And they keep feeding. And pretty soon, the vessel on the right runs out. So they go over and they fill it from the one in the middle. And go back and keep feeding. And pretty soon, the one on the left runs out. And they feel it from the one in the middle. And they keep feeding. And it goes like that the whole time. The vessel in the middle never ran out of rice. They get all done. It's late in the evening. The commander comes up to him and he says, are you people okay? He goes, yeah, I think so. He said, do you realize that you people have fed over 10,000 people? And, and he goes, uh, 
No, we really didn't. And he said, everything inside of us was just so excited. And we were, we, you know, he, he walks off and we kind of keep our composure until he's gone. And then we go, yeah, can you believe that? And, and they huddle together and they just start praising the Lord. And they said, all of a sudden, this hush fell on us like this massive blanket and said, the rice was for you to know I'm here. Now we've got work to do. And over the next three weeks, I mean, you've got some of their personnel that have been there 20-some years that haven't seen a single convert come to Christ. Over the next three weeks, they saw over 350 Muslims come to Christ. And you just think, wow! I mean, how he has to break into our worlds and say, I am here and I can do this. Will you get your eyes off of you and realize that I am all sufficient. I can make anything happen. Amen? Now feel free to chime in and say amen anytime. Now. Oh, there's a passage. Cool. So, the next passage in Mark is when Jesus walks on the water. Well, I'm going to take us over to Matthew because it expands that story line a little more and includes the part of Peter and other things. So I just want to go on that for a little bit. It's the same story. It's just in Matthew instead. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. While he sent the people home, after sending them home, he went up into onto the hills by himself to pray. Night fell, and he was there alone. It's easier for me to tell you this in person um, than read. He, he watches them. They are quite a ways from the shore, right? It's in the third watch of the night. That's somewhere in 3 a.m., something like that. And, they, and he sees them straining at the oars because the wind and the waves were beating them. I love that expression. How many people have ever felt like that? You are, you are exhausted. You are straining with every ounce that you have left in you. And you feel beat to a pulp by everything around you. I saw one person raise their hand. Anybody else? All the rest of you have no problem with this. Yeah, I have problems with this all the time. Yeah, where you just feel beaten up. And Jesus comes to them. Walking on the water, of course. Why not? And I don't understand this because it, it, it says, and he intended to pass them by. We're not going to get into that, okay? But the, the, the disciples saw him walking on the water and they thought he was a ghost, right? Now again, for those of us that read the Bible and just sort of read it like it's a novel or something and just read and he was walking on the Bible and uh, on the water, and the and the disciples were very afraid because they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out in terror. Uh, no, 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 no. It, it's more like ah! it's a ghost. Yeah, I mean they were terrified. It wasn't just you know it's a ghost. Oh look, it's a ghost. No, no, no. I mean they were terrified. And Jesus says in our translations. Jesus says, do not be afraid, or fear not, it is I, do not be afraid. No, that's actually not what he said. He's not speaking English to his boys. He's not even speaking Greek to the boys. He's speaking Aramaic 
to the boys. Because that's what they spoke with each other, right? And in Aramaic, it says this. Fear not. I am. Do not be afraid. I don't know if that means anything to you this morning. Everybody in that boat knew the difference between those two things. Everybody in that boat in a heartbeat would have thought back to Moses when God said, go tell Pharaoh that I sent you. And, and he said, what, what, who, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Now, for those of us who may not speak those languages, um, you may say, that, I, I don't know if that's good English even. How, what does that mean, I am? I am everything you could ever need. I am everything you could ever want. I am everything this world is, is starving for. I am the solution to all the problems of this world. I am. That was what Jesus declared on the water that day. And, and you know, notice how Jesus says these things and doesn't fill it with air. He doesn't say, oh, don't be afraid. I'll hold your hand. Oh, no need to fear. No, no, no. He says, there's a reason why you don't need to fear. And you can bank your life on it. There's a reason why you don't need to be afraid of what's ahead. And you can build your life on it. Because I am. That's why you don't need to be afraid. In response to that, Peter, <laughs> wonderful Peter, says, if that's, if that's really you, if that's really who, you're, who you are, if you really are who you just said you are, ask me to come. Jesus being a master teacher, <laughs> he says, come. So he comes. And what does Peter do? I mean, let, let's just face it, Peter. His name alone should give him some warning. The rock. Yeah, this is not going to go well, Petey. You know, you're just saying, oh dear. <laughs> and, and yet he jumps over the side of the boat and heads out and he sees the waves and the storm and he goes, oh stink, what was I thinking? And he sank like his namesake. And, and he said, save me. And Jesus graciously reached down and saved him. And he said, that's okay, nice try, Peter. No, that's not what he said. Don't let me get away with that. He said, why did you doubt? Now, if I were Peter, I might have been tempted to turn around and say, me? I don't know if you noticed, but I'm the only one that got out of the boat. I'm the only one that's shown any faith here at all. I don't think Jesus was, was speaking to his willingness to get out of the boat. I think he said to Peter that day, and I think he says to us today, and I'm taking this to heart, me personally, okay? I think he's talking to all of us. He said, Peter and you all, why did you get out of the boat on the I am plan and get out here and switch to the I can plan. Peter, what made you think you could walk on water, pal? 
Apart from me, which is the verse we started with, right? You can do nothing. Peter forgot that part, didn't he? We forget that part. It's not just anyone in the pages of that book that is talking to us. I am is talking to us. He said, I didn't put you out here in, in your situation, whatever situation that is, without, being, without not being here with you and without not being I am with you. Don't forget who I am. And don't forget who you are and we're not the same. And you can lean and depend on me with everything. And I am is here with you. Whatever these days hold, whatever he's calling you to, whatever it is, I am is with you. Amen? Yeah. I am makes all the difference. All the difference. Just don't try and lean on your own understanding. Don't try and do your own thing. Don't walk out of the boat on the I can plan. You can't. You can do nothing apart from me. Why are you trying? Stop. Be still. And know that I am God and you are not. Amen? Oh, I'm at zeros. That's what that clock's back. They say it starts flashing. I don't know. Let's see. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with a story. Father Elia has become a very good friend of mine. Elia in, in Arabic means Elijah. And um, Father Elia is a Orthodox priest. He's not a very big fellow. He's about my height. But he's got this massive beard. And this cross as big as my head hanging from that. And, you know, the big black robes and everything else. And, and he has this low voice. And Father Elia, if you meet him out of his context, you go, wow, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> but he's just this, he's, he's, a, he's a giant of a guy in the way he presents himself. Well, Father Elia, by God's grace, no doubt, has started 12 schools out in the middle of no place. Six of them in Syria, six of them in Lebanon. His students are all sons and daughters of Muslim leaders, Christian leaders, Asidi leaders, um, you name it. I just, they're all over the map in the classroom. And he loves them all to pieces. When Father Elia is not teaching and directing 12 schools out in the middle of the desert, Father Elia teaches church history at Cambridge. We're not talking about a dodo here. <laughs> and he, he has given us, as a staff, he's given us a three and a half hour lecture in church history that was in a way that I've never heard church history taught in my entire life. It was brilliant. Brilliantly done. And Father Elia has been captured, captured by ISIS three different times. The last time they captured him, they shot him in the leg because they didn't want him running off. So he could barely get around, he could barely walk, and he's in this tent, this jail tent, and this young Muslim fellow comes in with a tray of food, 
And, and apparently this is one of what ISIS does to you when you're a, capt- a captive of theirs. And he, they, were, they were feeding him, and, and the young man says, Eat well, for tomorrow they will kill you. And so Father Elia grabs the man's, not the tray, the man's hands, and says, Then today would be a great day for you to come to know Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And the young man almost drops the tray. He he runs out of the tent. Next day, comes in, brings breakfast. Today they will kill you. Then today would be a great day for you to know Isa al-Masih. Runs out of the tent. Five, six, seven days, same thing. So the last morning, this young man comes in to me and he says, Sir, today they are going to kill you. And he said, Then today you must come to know Isa al-Masih. Father Elia couldn't care less if they killed him because he knows that I am has him, right? He knows where he's going, but this young man's going to hell unless he comes to know Isa al-Masih. See, today would be the great day for you to come to know Isa al-Masih. And he walks out of the tent. He said, literally, I took my tray and I sat down on my cot. And all hell broke loose outside of the tent. Bombs were going off, rockets firing, machine gun fire. Everything in its grandmother was happening out there. And he said, I, I couldn't hardly get up off the cot. I hurt so badly, but I went and I was going toward the de- door when the door flung open and there was a friend of mine standing in the doorway. He said, what are you doing here? Obviously in Arabic, not in English. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, we're not, we're not going to let... The, the guy who was at the door is the head of Hezbollah in that area. He goes, we're not gonna, we hate these guys. We're not going to let them kill you. You teach our children. You love on our kids. You take care of our families. We're not going to let that happen. Now here's Hezbollah and ISIS fighting over an Orthodox priest. (laughs) What kind of world is this? Yeah, it's all gone chaotic. But the fact is, is there is a God in heaven. And he is I am. And he sits enthroned above everything. He's not going anywhere. And he's the one that looks at you and I, every single one of us, and says, I've got this. I've got you. I don't care how desperate it looks. I don't care how hard it looks. I don't care how bad it looks. I am here with you. Amen? Amen. I am. Fear not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our great I am. Not, not for somebody else, not for some peoples around the world. You're, you're there too. But you are our I am. It's a personal thing. You love us deeply, powerfully. And you are aggressively and actively at work in us and for us and through us every day. That's what you want is useful tools in your hands. And so we ask that you would enable us, grace us to be useful tools in your hands, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Tim.